into Matthew chapter 21 as we uh, continue our study of this. We'll look at to the end of the chapter 46 today. I suspect everyone's heard the expression, that's the last straw. That's a shortened version of another well-known idiom, the straw that broke the camel's back. That's the last straw, I guess. Both of those picture the increase of the weight of a load, in this case carried by a camel, until the addition of a single piece of straw proves to be too much. And the camel collapses with a broken back, unable to carry such a load. That was indeed the last straw that broke the camel's back. This idiom goes way back to the beginning of the 19th century, but before then there was a similar expression, the feather that broke the horse's back. Meaning it's exactly the same. I mention all this not because you need a history, uh, the history of English idioms, but because our text provides a terrible example of the last straw. More on that later. Let's get started by reading our text. Verse uh, 33 down to the end of the chapter. Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to the leaders of Israel. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized the servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crops at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who, fails on, who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds because the people held that he was a prophet. This powerful account teaches us two important truths, I think. 
The first is this. God lavishes grace on us. God lavishes grace on us. Okay, kids, you may not know the word lavish. It means to give large amounts of something very special. It actually came from an old French word, lavas, which meant a downpour of rain. So God has poured out his grace on us, soaking us with his grace, so to speak, lavished us with it. And it seems from childhood, though, that we have difficulty counting our blessings. Gratitude just does not come easy for us. But in this parable, Jesus invites us to reflect on the way God has lavished his grace on us. Jesus makes this point by telling us a parable about a landowner and his vineyard. This idea of God dealing with his, with his people, being like a farmer dealing with his vineyard, is an Old Testament idea. We find it in Isaiah 5 and in, in Psalm 80, for example. So, so first, in verse 33, we see God lavishing his grace in the way he cared for his people. We'll see several ways here. First, in the way he cared for his people. Let me read a little bit of Psalm 80. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. The point is that God rescued his people who were slaves down in Egypt, and he brought them like a little sprig of a grapevine up into the land uh, out of Egypt and up into the land of Canaan, guarding that little plant. And he found a fertile place to plant it. And he cleared the rocky ground all around that field and, and used it to, to put up a, a stone wall to protect his vineyard. And he built a tower to watch for predators. And he built a wine press to pro process its fruit. He sank his life into this little vineyard. The point is that God has lavished his grace on his people, his little vineyard. Not only Israel throughout the Old Testament, but you and me as well. He chose us. He transplanted us to put us here. He provides for us. He guards us. He puts his hope in us. And he gives us his loving attention. God has lavished grace on us. But there's more. God lavishes his grace on us in what he entrusts to us. At the end of verse 33, the landowner entrusts his whole vineyard to these tenants. That's just what God did with his ancient children. He entrusted them to the shepherds of Israel. And we too are recipients of his trust. Really, what do we have that doesn't belong to the Lord? Whatever it is, we just hold it for him, enjoying it at his discretion. But it's not just things. God has entrusted his greatest treasures to us, his word, his people, the gospel, his plan for the world. He has given us gifts and trusted us to minister to one another, entrusted the people most precious to him into our safekeeping. 
Same is true for our children, I might add. God says that these children belong to him. You bore them to me, he says, in case there's any question. That's why we baptize them. Because he says they're mine. But he's entrusted them to us. What grace. And this trust is especially applicable to those who are leaders of the church. These are the ones to whom Jesus is talking in this text. God has entrusted his vineyard, his church, his precious people to hard hands, under shepherds, he calls them. But God expects fruitfulness. But what grace that he would include us in his great work. You know, ingratitude is ugly. This morning I call you to give thanks to God who has entrusted so much to you. God has lavished his grace on us, continues to. That's not all. God's grace is also displayed even further in his patience. In verses 34 to 36, the landowner sent his servants to collect his portion of the fruit of the vineyard. Jesus was referring to God, using the analogy that he's making here, referring to God sending his, prom, his prophets to call his people to faithfulness. And how were they received? Well, just like Jesus said in this parable. For example, think of the prophet Elijah. They hounded him for years. They cast him into prison plotted to take his life. But God patiently sent his servants, one after another, after another, to call his people back. He lavished patience on his people who were not doing well obeying him. Before we get too comfortable, how have we treated those whom God sent to call us back to himself? Perhaps you sent a father or mother who sees through your lifestyle and says, son, you're not living for the Lord and you know it. And how's that admonition received? Perhaps he sent you a friend, a rare friend who loves you enough to speak the truth that you don't want to hear. And how do you receive that kind of gentle, loving rebuke? Or perhaps he's given you a church family Pastors, elders, brothers, sisters who dare to interfere with your life and challenge your ideas. And how do you receive that evidence of God's gracious patience? Oh, consider the magnitude of God's patience, not just with Israel's leaders, but with you and me. God continues to patiently lavish his grace on us. But God's grace is still not exhausted. He cares for us, provides for us, he entrusts things to us. He's patient with us. But there's more. Consider the crowning glory of his grace in verse 20, 37. When reasonable measures had brought no results, 
When God's servants, the prophets, had been killed, one after another after another, then we see how gracious God's grace really is. For what does he do? God sent his son. <laughs> you and I would have sent the police. But this landowner is a picture of God whose mercy is infinite, whose grace abounds even more than sin can abound. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. God did not send his son to condemn the world, but so that through him the world could be saved. Oh, this morning I set before you the magnificent grace of God. He has lavished grace upon us. He has cared for us as his precious possession. He has entrusted us with tra his treasures as his stewards. He has spoken to us again and again, even when we refused to listen and rejected his messengers. And most magnificent of all, he has sent the Son he loves. Sent him to die on the cross to pay for our sin, to take the curse we deserve, to reconcile us to himself. The apostle said, rightfully said, the goodness of God ought to lead us to repentance. How can we know such grace and remain unchanged. Which brings us to our second point, in which God spells out the response he expects. It's very simple, but it's life-consuming in its implication, our second truth. God says, honor my son. That's it. Honor my son. You know, in a land founded on freedom of religion, we agreed a long time ago to tolerate different points of view. But more recently, thinking has become so secular and so relativistic that few of us would dare to claim that one religion is more correct than the others. It is here that Christianity takes the most abuse in our culture. It is here that people are offended by the message of the gospel. They would say, do you mean to tell me that there's no other way to God except through your Jesus? With all the religions in the world, with all these people faithfully practicing their faith, do you mean to say that it all means nothing if they don't believe in your Jesus? How could a loving God be so narrow-minded? Sound familiar? But folks, as we have seen, this parable strikes at the heart of that thinking that God is cruel. This parable sets the coming of Jesus in its proper context. It is the crowning act of God's undeserved grace 
It demonstrates that God is not arbitrary or cruel. He is full of grace. He has lavished grace on his people. He has lavished his grace on his enemies dying for their sin. But after lavishing his grace on us, God demands one thing. Honor my son. Honor my son. You see, this is the real issue here. It was not religion that is rejected back in Israel or, back, or today. These leaders were the most religious people in the world. You don't know anybody as religious as these leaders. They believed in God. They represented God. They were devout in their religion throughout every detail of their life. It was just this Jesus that they did not like. Did you ever wonder why? He demanded things that they found uncomfortable. He challenged their hearts and motives, not just their practices. He rejected their claims for themselves and spoke of God's claims. He was threatening to their comfortable situation, to their religious establishment. And why do people reject Jesus today? Same kind of reasons. He cramps my style. I could be religious without being so radical. I have my own agenda, my own needs, my own traditions. He might take away things that are precious to me. But in spite of their great religious devotion, this confrontation tells us that these leaders of Israel were rebels in revolt against God while proclaiming their piety. They were plotting to have Jesus killed. People of various religions feel exactly the same way today concerning Jesus. The truth is, these leaders had a sinister plan. We read about it in verse 38 and 39. When the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. The New Testament scholar William Lane provides some legal background here. He says, the peril of the defiant tenants reflects the tension between the absentee landowners and the dispossessed peasants who cultivated the land. The arrival of the sun caused the tenant farmers to assume that the owner had died and the sun came to collect his inheritance. But under certain circumstances, An inheritance could be regarded as ownerless, which would then be lawfully claimed by whomever uh, 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 made the first claim. This provision of law explains why the tenants assumed that if they murdered the son, they might take possession of the vineyard. So in the parable, that's what they did. 
They killed the son to take from him what belonged to his father and was rightfully his. They set themselves against the landowner, now presumed dead, in order to seize his property for themselves. Folks, don't be naive. The religious toleration and pluralism of our day sounds so good, looks so good on paper, but underneath it, even in our day, is rebellion against God's Son, Jesus, who claims exclusive rights to our devotion. But that exclusive honor is just what we resist. We want to be in the driver's seat. We want to determine what's true. We want religion to serve our needs and our desires. We do not want to die to self and follow someone else, not even if Jesus is God's son. But God demands, honor my son. So the story ends being a terrible parable of judgment. They made a terrible assumption concluding the landowner was dead. But he was not dead. He was only being patient, full of grace. And we make the same grave assumption when we think that we can manipulate God in order to respectfully rebel against him and use him for our own advantage. There's no question he's lavished his grace on us. But at the same time, God demands... Honor my son. So in verse 40, Jesus put the question to these leaders of Israel. So what will the owner do to these tenants? And by the response, these Jewish leaders condemn themselves. Listen to verse 41. They say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at the harvest time. So Jesus explained, this is just exactly what the scriptures say concerning me, that I would be rejected before the kingdom prospered. He'd been telling his disciples for six months that he was about to be killed. Now he tells the people plotting to kill him. But he also predicts that his rejection will not be the end of him. For the stone that the builders rejected, he's quoting from the Old Testament here, will become the capstone of the new living temple of God. Oh, do you see, even by overt rebellion, you cannot thwart God's plans. He demands that his son be honored and he will see to it himself. We read that way back in Psalm 2. It was predicted. There we read how the nations of the world and the leaders of the people gathered together and plotted together to reject and overthrow the Lord and his anointed son. But then we read the one enthroned in heaven laughed at them saying, I have installed my son, anyway. 
He is my, my king. Anyway, he is my son. The refusal to honor the son would prove to be the judgment on these leaders. Listen again to verses 43 and 44. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Here's where I thought of that idiom. You can load up a camel with lots of baggage, but if you continue, there comes a moment when it all comes crashing down, and that was the last straw. Jesus says God's judgment will be like that on those who refuse to honor his son. There's a day when his patience runs out. There's a day when his anger is filled up and unleashed, when his grace comes to an end, when there is a catastrophic chain reaction. And the reason for it all is that the God of all grace demands that we honor his son, the crowning display of his grace. He has poured out his mercy on us, even when we were his enemies, but he has no other plan than that we follow Jesus. Everything else is treason. So what happened? The New Testament scholar D.A. Carson notes the confrontation between Jesus and these religious leaders ends with magnificent yet tragic irony. The religious leaders are told they will reject Jesus and be crushed. But instead of taking the warning, they hunt for ways to arrest him, hindered only by the fear of the people who believe Jesus is a prophet. And so they trigger the very situation they have been warned about, a dramatic example of God's poetic justice. God in the scriptures foretells this very event, and these men, prompted by hatred, rush to bring it to pass. And it came to pass. God gave them 40 years to repent of the rejection of his son. For God is still full of grace. But in 70 AD, these leaders who said, we have no king but Caesar, let Jesus' blood be on our hands, the hands of our children, were tragically destroyed. In 70 AD, the Roman army attacked Jerusalem, and according to the Jewish historian Josephus, they crucified so many people they ran out of crosses. Then they burned the city and took everyone captive, so they were scattered to the four winds, and they have been for 2,000 years. God has rejected the nation Israel and given their promises to a new people who will honor his son. Israel is no longer God's favored people. Their promises have been taken away, and they dwell under the curse of God's judgment like everyone else who rejects God's son. Their only hope is the same hope that the rest of the world has, that Jesus will lavish grace on those who will turn from the rebellion and honor God's son. So this morning I call you again to Jesus. 
He's the crowning demonstration of God's grace, but God is unwilling to negotiate concerning him. God demands that we honor his son, that we believe in him and accept him and listen to him and follow him and give him the allegiance which is his due and live as stewards of that which belongs to him. It doesn't matter how religious we might be. It doesn't matter how we may believe in God. If we fail to honor the son, Jesus will crush us. That's what it says. Oh, this is not a warning to secular pagans. Though it's true for them, this is a warning to God's people, the church. These chief priests and Pharisees were the leaders of God's Old Testament church. They were the elders, pastors, teachers, and leaders of worship. But they became so smug that they didn't have to listen to Jesus. They didn't have to bow to his authority. They didn't have to render honor to him. They didn't have to forsake themselves and give their lives to him. So they, of all people, came under his judgment. And the Apostle Paul then warns us, if they were who were the natural branches of God's olive tree, another metaphor for his people, if they who were the natural branches could be cut off, rejected, and destroyed, we dare not think that, think that we, the wild Gentile branches, who have been grafted into the tree, will not be destroyed like they were if we harden our hearts against God's Son. So the question that became the downfall of Israel now confronts us. What will you do with Jesus? God lavishes his grace on us. He is full of grace. No one has ever seen it like we have. They only knew of Jesus' earthly ministry. They didn't know of what the death, his death and resurrection meant. Though they were to see it and still not believe. But no one has ever seen what we've seen. Still, God still, com still commands us, honor my son. We dare not ignore the Father's word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we don't trust ourselves for one moment to not forget and do stupid things. We've forgotten and done stupid things so many times. And we thank you for your grace that holds us close. And we pray you continue to hold us close. But Father, may we not tolerate a rebellious heart that says, I can handle it myself. I don't need Jesus anymore. That reduces him to some lesser person than your son, Father. Grant us perseverance. Grant us faith. Grant us humility. Grant us, Lord, the recognition of your grace and goodness that we would never even want to turn away. Lord, have mercy on us. Amen.